Hey, how's it going? I'm your host, Gerhard Zou, and you're listening to Ship It, a podcast about getting your best ideas into the world and seeing what happens. We talk about code, ops, infrastructure, and the people that make it happen. Yes, we focus on the people because everything else is an implementation detail. How did a challenge with 2000 microservices become a world-renowned application proxy, product company, and a great community? What are the real-world implications of shipping many times a day for years? And what specifically makes it hard to sustain an inclusive and healthy open-source community while building a product company? I had the pleasure of talking to Emil Vosch, founder and CEO of Traffic, and learning from his experience. This conversation deepened my appreciation for Traffic, which I intend to spend more time with. The story behind the Travis CI to CircleCI migration, then to Semaphore CI and eventually GitHub Actions, is an interesting one. The automation tools inspired by the Mimerka and Colony is a fascinating idea executed well, but there is more to discover in the episode. Big thanks to our partners Fastly, LaunchDarkly and Linode. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. Get your feature flags powered by launchdarkly.com. And we love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com forward slash changelog. Hey shippers, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Render. Render is a zero DevOps cloud for developers and teams. And I'm here with Anurag Goel, CEO of Render. Anurag, why are developers choosing Render over Heroku? A lot of Render customers come to us from Heroku and they tell us Render is what Heroku could have been. I think it's because we offer a more streamlined approach to hosting modern cloud applications at a significantly better price point. All right, learn more about how Render compares to Heroku at render.com slash compare or email changelog at render.com for a personal introduction and to ask questions about the Render platform. Again, changelog at render.com or go to render.com slash compare. Emil, tell us, how did the traffic idea start? So yeah, it started six years ago. At that time, I was I was a developer, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I was working on a microservices platform, which was quite complex. I needed to manage like two thousand microservices. So it was microservices were early. There were not that many tools to handle microservices at that time, and two thousand microservices you cannot do anything manually. It has to be automated, right? Mm -hmm. And I needed to automate the routing aspect, the networking aspect, right, to each of those microservices. And at that time, existing reverse proxy, it was not possible to automate things, right? You had to basically write a configuration file for those reverse proxy, restart it, and that's it. So if you had to do any change, you had to restart it and you had to generate the configurations of files. So that's really what was the pain point mm-hmm. at that time, automate the reverse proxy. So that's something I, I started to work on, but it was a side project, right? And so, yeah, I started to 
to do a few lines of code in Go, then work a bit more on it. And then I was just passionate about it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And a few months later, I had something. I had a project and it was traffic. So I decided to open source it. And I was like, yeah, maybe it will interest like a few people in the world because maybe a few people will hit the same pain <laughs> that I did, but I was not expecting anything. And surprisingly, the success was here. The project was on the front page of Hacker News and it changed everything. <laughs> mm. So it was completely unexpected from a side project. It went to a, to a real open source project with a community around it, with a external maintainers, external contributors in only a few weeks. And so that really was how everything started. That is a great story. That is a great story. So what I'm hearing is that it started as a problem that you had, <laughs> and apparently many others had as well. I think that's one of the reasons why it became so popular, right? You've definitely hit something that others had too. 2,000 microservices. I can't imagine that. That sounds crazy. That is a very big deployment. I mean, where was this running? Was it, I mean, I don't think Kubernetes was used in production back then. So how did you run those 2000 microservices? Yeah, at that time, it was kind of crazy and early, right? Mm -hmm. At that time, of course, Kubernetes was not even here. Mm -hmm. So it was only the beginning of Docker. Mm -hmm. And so we were using Docker and Mesos, mm -hmm. which was already production ready. And you had already a few companies with big deployment on Mesos, like Twitter or eBay, I think. I remember as well, Apple was a big Mesos yeah. user. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, we started with Mesos. Mm -hmm. And so the first version of traffic did had Mesos support with Marathon mm -hmm. and also console, etcd, Docker. So a few, a few things. But of course, Kubernetes came later, I think the year after. I did Kubernetes support and yeah, it changed everything once Kubernetes was here. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And also what I'm realizing now is that the service discovery, that traffic is like a first class citizen and it works so well, must be coming from this, right? Where you have 2000, like how do you even configure them? How do you like make sure the config reloads instantly without needing to run any commands? I mean, it just has to work like that because otherwise, I mean, it's madness, right? 2,000 things, wow. Configuring that many things is just so difficult and things come and go all the time. There's always some sort of churn, new versions. Okay, that's interesting. So since you started Traffic in 2015, what things did you get right? So I guess building an active community around the project from D1 was definitely something we did right. And it is... Today, I learned that it was not easy to sustain it, right? So yes, we started a project and some people came to contribute and became full-time maintainer. And the community is super strong on traffic. And I think this is definitely something that is extremely complex to, to achieve. I learned that. So it was kind of a mix between being lucky, uh, having the right idea at the right time, but also being able to handle a community, which is complex, right? Mm -hmm. Because everybody wants to contribute, but everybody wants to govern the project. Everybody has different ideas. So, you know, it is kind of complex. And usually you have strong personality in these communities. So you have to learn a lot of diplomacy to handle it in the right way. So I think it was done very nicely with traffic. I think so. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
I always thought that it was those graphics and drawings which were really good. I always enjoyed, and I always remember those. I was, I was sure that the success was basically that. By the way, who did those drawings? Was it you by any chance? <laughs> no, it's a friend of mine who is also a developer, <laughs> but he's uh, doing some design uh, as a side project. So yeah. Traffic was so approachable because of that. And I'm pretty sure that that mentality was seen throughout everything else, right? Polite, correct, uh, inclusive, but also approachable. And um, I think those drawings capture it really well. So the thing which really stuck with me over the years is how consistent they have remained and how well they were able to explain some complex problems and some complex concepts. So I really enjoy them, by the way. Whoever your friend is, he or she is doing an excellent job. So keep at it. (laughs) It's great. I love them. Okay, so I don't know many projects that have hundreds and hundreds of alphas and betas, but traffic is one of them. So I went to look at the repository and I counted 500 alphas and 800 betas. And some of these, like some of the alphas and betas were being cut and made available multiple times per day. What is the story behind that? Why so many alphas and betas? So that's a good question. And I think you are the first one who count everything (laughs) on the repository. So there is one good reason before the 1.0 we were using continuous deployment solution. And basically every commit, every PR was generating a, a new beta, right? So it was, everything was automated. And we were thinking at that time that there were so many contributions from, any, from many people that they just wanted to have this version right on time, mm-hmm. right when the PR was merged. So that was the reason. And it was also very easy to do, right? I mean, you could just connect to, you just generate a Docker image, you just push it and that's it. So it was basic. And then later we started to structure a bit more the release cycle. And we decided that it was time to just release only, for example, for three or four big releases in a year, because it was easier now that it was in 1.0, it was easier for company to manage the release and the uh, the upgrades. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was it. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what I was expecting. And this is some this is one of the signs if you do continuous delivery, continuous integration of rights, you have many, many artifacts. Now you may choose to make those artifacts publicly available, or they can be more hidden, but you will have those artifacts, regardless whether they're visible or not. And maybe some people, there's like a dev channel or a nightly channel or whatever, where every single commit, that's exactly the way it should be. Every single commit produces an artifact. People can test it. People can, you can run performance tests, all sorts of things. They're so valuable. And the quicker you can produce them, well, guess what? The more contributions you'll get because people can see the results of their work straight away. That is amazing. And the structure thing makes perfect sense. Once you get a bit more structured, once a bit more, like more people get involved, you want to reduce some of that noise or at least separate it. So that makes perfect sense. So what did you use at the time for the CI CD system? Do you remember? Yes. And that's an interesting topic because we changed like at least three or four times mm-hmm. the chain. We adapted. So I think we started with Travis plus Docker Hub, pretty basic. Mm-hmm. And after a few months, we hit it. The wool tests were lasting like 50 minutes. We were hitting the uh, top limit of Travis. So we changed to Cycle CI and it was a bit better. And then we changed again to, uh, we just changed to Circle CI, which was better. And then we ultimately changed to Semaphore CI, 
which was super interesting because we divided the uh, time by like 10, I guess, mm -hmm. adapting our test to a semaphore. So it was extremely performant and probably a bit more basic. You know, mm -hmm. you had less uh, command on semaphore, but that's fine. We were doing everything with uh, our own script. So yeah, we migrated to semaphore and then we connected to the company Semaphore and then we became friends. And so they gave us some mm. uh, server and that's it. So we had to adapt several mm. times our CI. And even today, it's kind of complex, right? Because we have a build that is generated on the fly for each PR with each commit. It allows us to test everything. It allows the contributor to test everything. As you said, as soon as the PR is merged, we generate uh, an experimental build that everybody can use. So yeah, I think we are really on top of the CI, right? It is super important to us and it allowed us to manage crazy amount of contributors. You're right. I am exactly of the same opinion and I'm glad that you're seeing and practice the same thing, right? If you get that right, many things will start happening as a result of that. It's super important. So big fan, thank you for sharing that. What about from the perspective of things that didn't go so well, but let me make it a bit more positive. What about from the perspective of learning from failure? What failures did you learn from in the last six years from traffic or in traffic? Things that you wish you had done better or things that in hindsight were not as good ideas as you had? So two things comes into my mind. I mean, of course we did way more mistakes, right? But two- The ones that stand out. Yeah, two things. So the first thing, I will continue my story with that I was talking about. We did build a great community, which is still super active, right? But over time, I also founded a company behind a project. I also hired a wool team, which is working full time on it. And we are, today we are 40 people, right? And 40 people are working full time on traffic. I mean, not the wool team are developers, right? But a good part of it. And when you have a team working full time on it, the project is going super fast and it's becoming more and more difficult to follow from when you are an external contributor. And with time, we found that it was really complex to sustain external contributions with the internal team going so fast. So I don't think we did any big mistake, but what I learned is that it was possible to create a great community from a pet project and to create a big community. But as soon as you go like professional with it, it was not that easy to sustain. Mm -hmm. So that's something important we learn. Sustaining a big community is not that easy than just starting it. Mm -hmm. That's my, my take. And another thing, a mistake, I guess, that we made is the big gap between 1.x and 2 branch on traffic. So we decided at that time that many things were not that great with the architecture of the 1.x branch. So we wanted to revamp project basically. So we'll just give you one technical example, but for example, in the 1.x branch, we had some integration with Kubernetes using the ingress specification. And in the ingress specification, it's pretty basic on Kubernetes. And as soon as you want to add some options, you had to use annotation. And this was really an issue because annotations can become a mess, right? Because it's not a structure, right? It's mm -hmm. just annotation. 
And if you want to do something complex, it becomes a mess. So we decided that, hey, in traffic.2, we will support okay, Ingress, but also our own CRD, which will allow us to do some complex stuff on Kubernetes without annotation, which is a pain. And surprisingly, so we were sure that the community would be right, would be okay with that. And we were wrong. The community just wanted to have ingress. Most of the community, of course, some people were okay with CRD, but most people just wanted to have some ingress. So that's one mistake we did. We were convinced internally in the company that CRD were the thing to do, but that was not what the majority of the community was thinking. And we learned from that. Sometimes you have a disconnection between your team and the community, and you have to work on that every day. You have to avoid disconnecting your team from the community every day. And it's a real, it's a real deal, right? It's not easy to do. So the connection between a company and a community, it's a lot of work. What's up, shippers? This episode is brought to you by Sentry. You already know working code means happy customers, and that's exactly why teams choose Sentry. From error tracking to performance monitoring, Sentry helps teams see what actually matters, resolve problems quicker, and learn continuously about their applications from the front end to the back end. Over a million developers and 70,000 organizations already ship better software faster with Sentry. That includes us. And guess what? You can too. ShipIt listeners new to Sentry get the team plan for free for three months. Use the code SHIPIT when you sign up. Head to Sentry.io and use the code SHIPIT. glad you mentioned the relationship between the community and the company and the product because I know how important that is. Not only it's important, but it's very easy to get them out of sync. And then the product goes in certain directions or the community goes in different directions and they just get out of sync. And it's not nice. It's like friction and tension and you have to address it at some point if you want to be successful as a project, right? Because it started as a project, it started as this idea. It's a great idea. But how do you sustain it as it grows and as it becomes more complex? So what did you do to reconcile those differences between traffic the company, traffic the product, traffic the products, because it's like an experience and it has so many components, and the internal team? How did you reconcile that? Work in progress? (laughs) Exactly. I mean, it will be work in progress. There is no deadline, right? It will be always work in progress. Mm -hmm. You need to work on that. Every day, as I said, if you want to sustain the connection. One thing we did, among others, is creating a group of the most active contributors, kind of a private group, right? Where we would have a specific connection with those. So it's called an ambassador, the ambassadors group. And we share with them some ideas, for example, we have for the roadmap. We discuss with them of this roadmap. We get their ideas, their feedback. We try to have them on board for private betas prior to everyone else. So we try to have really a specific connection with those, which are the most active ones. 
So that's something we created because we really wanted to to be sure that an active contributor would receive something special from us mm-hmm. because we do care about them. So that's really something we wanted to create f- for a long time. Another thing we did is have a specific process to handle all the input we have from the community every day. So to give you an idea, we have so many contributions, PR issues, posts on the forum, on Twitter, on Slack. This is so active that we need to have a specific process every day to handle everything. Mm-hmm. Other than that, the queue is becoming so huge after a week that it's not even manageable anymore. Mm-hmm. So we need to have a dedicated team to handle all the issues and PR every day. Mm-hmm. And that's an everyday work. So it's not a joke, right? As soon as the open source project is big, I mean, you just have to invest on it even more. (laughs) And you have to have a big dedication on it. So yeah, that's how we are dealing with it. And we have strong values on it. For example, we don't want a PR to last forever because it's it's kind of discouraging for an extended contribution. So of course we did some mistake. Some PR did last for like six months because it, for example, it was, we got some super complex PR and, you know, <laughs> it yeah. needs some time, just internal discussion, external discussion. It's not that easy, right, mm-hmm. to get some external contribution. But we try to be as fast as possible to encourage people or at mm-hmm. least to not discourage them. Yeah. And it requires a lot of work. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. Not only that, but I can see, I want to say how important it is, but it feels like it's. I'm not conveying the importance of it significantly enough. So most people think that shipping is where it stops, right? Like get the code done, get it out there and that's it. Well, actually that is the beginning of a very hard and long process, which maybe never ends. If you're really successful and your success keeps growing, it's just like, how do you sustain it? It's really, really hard. And what about keeping everything as lightweight as possible so that you don't waste time on a heavy process? But if you don't have a process, well, what are you even doing? You're left, right, and up and down. You don't even know which way is up or down because you're you're swamped with all these things. So what does the system look like for you? Do you have a Jira? I hope not. I don't know. Do you have Jira to keep track of things? Like, how do you track things? So we do track things using GitHub mainly. Mm-hmm. I mean, GitHub is the source of truth for everyone on traffic. But of course, we use internal tools like Notion for document or this kind of stuff. But yeah, mm-hmm. GitHub is the main source of truth. Okay. So when you receive, for example, a tweet or a Slack, do you convert it into an issue or a discussion in GitHub? What happens with that? Yes. If it makes sense, we convert it into an issue, of course, mm-hmm. because this is the only source of truth on traffic, the issues and the PR, of course, but the issues are mm-hmm. the only th- source of truth. We don't have a, an internal tool to have private issues or this kind mm-hmm. of stuff. No, everything is public okay. and everything is on GitHub. And do you have a single repository, multiple repositories? How does that work? So for traffic, we do have, that's a good question. So it's a, I guess we could call it a single repository. And especially now we do have some plugins in Traffic V2. So they come in a separate repository, each plugin. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a single repo, I guess. Do you do any repo syncing, anything like that behind the scenes so that you centralize all the issues in a single place? Or do you just open issues, for example, for a plugin in the plugin repo 
and then you have a view that merges them all together. How does that look? Yeah, every repo has their own issues. Sometimes we do have some connection between a few issues, right, between different repos. So traffic is having its own issues uh, relating another issue on mm -hmm. another repo, sometimes on another project, maybe even uh, driven by traffic labs. Okay. So one thing which I noticed is you also started using GitHub Actions yeah. a bit more like in the last, I think, year six months, six to 12 months. Exactly. Why did that happen? That was interesting to see. So I think the team at that time was really excited with uh, GitHub Actions mm -hmm. and they really wanted to uh, take advantage on it, right? It allows us to just continue what we were already doing with internal script, basically, mm -hmm. with just actions. So I don't think we are doing anything crazy. It just helped us to uh, orchestrate things in the uh, build and deployment process. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so nothing crazy, but it is replacing scripts we were using. Yeah, so it's a bit more than scripts because I had to look at especially the documentation workflow, which I haven't seen before. So you have this concept of the Mimirka and colony, which I found really interesting. And there's like different types of ants which have different roles in this colony. And that actually maps to the tools that you use to keep everything together. For example, Structa, which is a type of an ant, uh, creates multiple versions of MKDocs documentation. That's interesting. And Mixtus creates PRs and documentation changes. And there's like a whole list of these. That's a really interesting idea. How much do you know about that? Like, were you involved with that? Because your team is big and things are changing all the time. How much do you know about this specific aspect, which I found fascinating? So I don't know every specific aspect of it. But for example, we are dealing with so many contributions that we needed to automate everything as mm -hmm. much as possible. The only stuff we didn't automate are the, the review of the PR, <laughs> of course. Right, the human element, yes? Yeah. <laughs> you need humans for that, yes. Exactly, exactly. But that's it. The rest is automated. So yes, the documentation, everything is automated. We needed to keep track of all version of traffic because, you know, mm -hmm. when you only have one version, it's easy. But when you have 20, you have to keep track of everything because not everybody is on the latest, of course. Mm. Some people are still using the 1.0 or I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we needed to automate everything. For example, MKDoc is not supporting multiple version initially. So we uh, created that. We created something on top of that, which allowed us to generate a new version once we need it and keep track of others using the branch of the repo. So that's pretty basic, but it means that we did create it. We do maintain a lot of small tools like this mm. that are allowing us to automate the whole process. Yeah, I think this is unavoidable, right? The bigger the community, the more successful the project, the more it spreads, you need more automation because it's unsustainable to do these things manually. I love that. That just makes not only sense, but it's a joy to see it in real world and see what shape it takes based on, you know, whatever needs you have. So I really like that. I also liked your release cycle. I thought this was really interesting. You mentioned it in the first part of the interview. You mentioned about having three to four minor releases every year. Yeah. I thought that was great. That makes perfect sense. So can you tell us a bit more about how do the minor releases work? How do the patch releases work? And also, what about the majors? Because currently we're on V2. That's been around for a few years, I think. And V3, that's an interesting one. But let's just focus a bit on the release process itself, which I found fascinating. All right. So it's pretty uh, common, I guess. So we have 
as you said, bug feces, minor redices, and major redices. We just follow the SEMVER versioning system. Mm-hmm. And we do approximately three to four minor redices per year. So basically every, once every three months. And of course, in minor version, it needs to be backward compatible, no breaking change. So yeah, for example, if we need to add something new, it has to be without any breaking change. And um, with the bug fix, we have different type of bug fix, which correspond to different type of issues with priority issues, I guess. So we have a mechanism where if, for example, we have a very sick, very vulnerability discovered, which is pretty concerning, we tag it at priority zero, which means we have to release it today, the fix. Mm -hmm. That's just today. That's the rule. (laughs) Now, that is something really powerful because you saying that, it means that your pipeline for all the supported versions has to be fast. It can't take more than a few hours, all of it. Because if it takes more than a few hours, well, you can't release it in a day, right? I mean, it's just impossible because there's only so many hours in a day and you have so many versions to patch and it has to work in parallel. So this brings a couple of follow-up questions. How many versions do you currently support? So we support officially the latest minor version of Mm 1.x and the latest version of 2.x. So we we support the two last minor version of the two branches. Okay. So that's what we are doing. So the priority zero fix, which has to ship today, it has to actually ship in two versions. Yes. Okay. What about the other minor releases? Do you still patch them or you only focus on the latest minors for each major? We do focus on the latest minors because otherwise it doesn't make sense, right? Mm -hmm. Because as minors, they are backward compatible. You should just upgrade to the latest minor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That shouldn't be an issue, right? Right. So yeah, that's what we are doing. That makes a lot of sense. I also think that it makes perfect sense to only ship bug fixes in patches. Does that mean that even if you add a new feature, which doesn't change anything from the code base, would you not add it in a patch release? I think you wouldn't. That's my understanding, right? You wouldn't add a new feature. No. Okay, you wouldn't. No, no, of course. In patch releases, we never add a new feature. Okay. Never, never. Yeah, (laughs) that makes perfect sense to me. Okay, well, I'm glad that that makes sense for traffic as well. Okay, that makes, okay, that's great. So... When it comes to new miners that you ship every three months, how long do you support them for? So we support them for, it's until the next miner mm-hmm. plus a few months. I don't remember exactly the exact numbers. Mm-hmm. We do have something in the doc to explain that. Okay. But yes, once the new version arrives, mm-hmm. we support the previous version for a few months and then we, we stop. Okay, okay. And do your users know when to expect new versions? Do you have like a release calendar or anything like that? Not really, because ideally we would love to have that, right? Because it's easier. Mm -hmm. But in fact, we try to not communicate on exact date of release. Why? Because we always have external contributions that we were not expecting. And usually it comes at the last minute. And usually it leads to discussion huh, this one is interesting. Maybe we should just wait a bit for the next minor and include Mm -hmm. this one because it will be great for many people. And sometimes we just delay a bit what was Mm -hmm. planned and sometimes we just postpone the 
this one to the next release. So yeah, we adapt. Yeah, it makes sense. I think a release calendar makes sense from the perspective of, of communicating what to expect and when, right? If you know that, for example, you're going to ship a new miner in, let's say, three months or six months, and then there will be feature freeze in five months, any new contributions, no matter how amazing, they'll have to wait for the next one. Why? Because you have to have those discussions. You have to run all the testing. You have to get all the betas, alphas, RCs, whatever you need to do so that the community is aware of what's coming and they can actually you know, get excited about it. And who knows, maybe someone else will have another idea. Say, hey, well, have you thought about this? And then that contribution becomes even more amazing because it's been discussed and it's been out in the open for a while longer before the final implementation lands right in a shipped miner. So that makes sense. Okay. So what would make traffic bump the major version? We know how miners get bumped. What would traffic make it bump from V2, which is currently, to V3? In our mind, I mean, as soon as a new feature lead to not being backward compatible, mm-hmm. it has to be in a major. As soon as we need to do major changes in the architecture itself, this leads to a major release. So this kind of stuff, right? Mm. This makes a new release necessary, or this makes these kind of features wait for the next major release. That's what I mean. Okay. So let's imagine that you have a big feature coming up, which maybe it's a new feature, like it doesn't change anything, but it's a big difference in how the software behaves. Would you put that in a major or would you ship that in a minor? No, yeah, in a major. Mm. If it's something big that changes the way the software behaves, definitely a major, right? Okay. Even if it is backwards compatible, it doesn't really matter because it's significant enough to deserve its own major. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because it could have some side effects on many aspects, right? Because it's extremely complex to... Now traffic has become kind of complex, right? And it's as soon as you change significantly the architecture or something inside traffic, it will have some side effects. Mm. So it would be kind of crazy to do that in a minor, to be honest. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. So if you can't tell by now how passionate I'm about releases and shipping, you're just about to find out. If you can't (laughs) tell by now, how do you apply semantic versioning in traffic to, for example, config or plugins, or even like the API, what does semantic versioning means and like something not being backwards compatible? What does it mean in the context of traffic? That's a good question. But for example, on the API between two minor releases, the only thing that we accept additions to the API. Mm-hmm. No changes, right? Only additions. Okay. So if you have a new f- new features with additional, for example, parameters in the API, that's fine mm-hmm. because it's perfectly backward compatible. So that's okay. Yeah. That's the rule we follow. Same thing for the uh, configuration. The configuration should be perfectly backward compatible. So it's okay to add some new parameters, some new fields, some new annotations. Mm-hmm. You just have to continue to work with the what was existing before. What if the behavior of an internal component changes? Is that the public API? Like something just doesn't behave the way it used to because you've made a change, but the API hasn't changed. It's just the behavior changed. It depends, to be honest. There is no definitive answer. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we change some of the behavior, but it's on purpose because, for example, it's fixing something. So that's fine. But if it changes the behavior and if it could lead to unexpected things to users, then we don't do it. Or we do it, but adding an op- a flag, mm-hmm. typically. A feature flag. A feature flag or something. Yeah, that makes sense. So 
When we say traffic's API, what I understand by that is how things get configured and discovered. So how traffic does that, that's my understanding. Are you thinking about something else when we are talking about the traffic public API? We also expose a REST API to update or change the configuration. So we have, a, I guess, what we could call a real API. Mm -hmm. But yes, typically we have an API, but we, have a, we can also configure traffic through configuration file, through annotation in Docker or whatever, through configuration file on Kubernetes or through a KV store with HCD or console. So yeah. All those are APIs. Yeah. What about the plugins? What about the APIs that the plugins use to integrate with the traffic, the providers, or I think you call them providers, right? We have different type of plugins, in fact. Mm -hmm. We have provider plugins. And what is a provider plugins? If you want to integrate traffic to a new orchestrator, for example, you will need to write a provider plugin. Mm -hmm. So the provider plugin will be uh, we need to connect to this orchestrator, get some configuration and so on. This will be the role of the provider plugin. But we do also have some middleware plugin. And the middleware plugin are here to intercept and modify requests on the fly. So that's two different yeah. things in traffic. And right now, the plugins integration is extremely new, right? It has been here with local plugins in the 2.5 and plugins themselves are here in the 2.0 branch. So we don't have for now any, um, I would say, strong versioning mechanism inside plugin, but we have started to, we already have a framework, I guess, mm -hmm. here to implement that in the future. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's what we have. But for example, you have two ways to use plugins inside traffic today. You can use plugins that are on our marketplace. So that are published on our marketplace and you can use private plugins. So with private plugins, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> no version check or whatsoever. Yeah. You are free. And of course, if you use our market, plugins, we do generate some hashes for every build. So you can't touch plugins whatsoever because it will change the hash. So we have some ways to ensure that if you use plugins from the marketplace, they are untouched. Mm -hmm. So it's a way of versioning plugins with a hash. Okay. That's all we have. We don't have, for example, minor version of plugins yet. Okay. That makes sense. But the plugins, do they use some APIs that traffic exposes? And are those APIs part of your public API? Because that's like Go code, right? Like from the perspective of Go code, those interfaces, are they part of your public API that must be backwards compatible between miners? Absolutely. Perfect. Makes sense. Again, for some projects, I know it doesn't make sense, but I think this is important because I just want to know where you stand. And again, love it. This episode is brought to you by our friends at LaunchDarkly. Feature management for the modern enterprise. Power testing in production at any scale. Here's how it works. LaunchDarkly enables development teams and operation teams to deploy code at any time, even if a feature isn't ready to release to users. Wrapping code with feature flags gives you the safety to test new features and infrastructure in your production environments without impacting the wrong end users. When you're ready to release more widely, update the flag status and the changes are made instantaneously by the real time streaming architecture. Eliminate risk, deliver value, get started for free today at launchdarkly.com. Again, launchdarkly.com.
So Gensho.com is a traditional three-tier monolithic application that runs on Kubernetes. We have a proxy in the front, we have the app itself, and we have the database. Fairly standard. One thing that we have been noticing, or I have been noticing to be precise, is that we have some long tail latencies in our proxy. Some requests, once they hit the proxy, they can take up to 40, 50 seconds, while the 95th percentile is around three to 400 milliseconds. We'll have a whole debugging session with raw codes, David and Marcus from Equinix Metal around this, because the stack is Kubernetes. So you have QProxy, you have the database, there's like so many layers there. I'm wondering if we were to use traffic as the proxy, could it help us understand a little bit more why the requests are slow, at least from the proxy perspective? One of the biggest pain points of users with microservices platforms. So microservices are bringing so much to developers and to DevOps, to whatever, but they are also bringing complexity and finding the root cause of an issue is always kind of difficult and could be a nightmare. So to answer your question, with that specific issue, find some sporadic long request is always an issue. The best you can do with that issue is with traffic, you can enable distributed tracing. For example, with Jaeger, open tracing, Zipkin, whatever. And the best is to have tracing in all your services and in front of all your application, database included. With that, at least you can see if your request takes sometimes in specific service or in the database or whatever. But sometimes it's even more complex. Sometimes the requests are slower inside the reverse proxy. You have a few requests that are so much slower. It could be a nightmare. Mm. One of the reasons, among others, is that some requests are using an older version of TLS. For example, that's just an example, which the implementation is slower. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Or some TLS requests are using a specific cipher, which is slower again, and it could be a nightmare to find. Mm -hmm. So the best way in that case is with traffic, you enable, I mean, you go on the dashboard, you can see the um, metrics in real time. You can also export your metrics in real time in any system, right? Data, the Grafana, Prometheus. And the best you can do is enable the logs and you will see when you have a slow request in the logs, for example, if it's a TLS request, if it's uh, which ciphers it uses, this kind of stuff. And mm. it can help, but there is no magic, right? If you only yes. have 10 requests over a million, which are slower, traffic won't tell you, hey, this is the reason why those 10 requests take some time. You will need to find the root cause of that yeah. with the help of traffic. That is super helpful. And what I do know is that our 99th percentile is a lot higher than our 95th percentile. So 95th, as I mentioned, 300 to 400 milliseconds. 99th, sometimes the spikes go as high as 40, 50 seconds. And that's what I need to understand. Why does a 99th percentile from a proxy perspective take that long? You mentioned something really interesting around services. And I'm wondering if you're thinking services from a Kubernetes perspective, or services from the perspective of putting traffic in front of, for example, the database, so that requests, because I know traffic can proxy TCP requests. So is that what you're thinking? Putting traffic in front of the database and in front of the app, so not just using the reverse proxy, but also using it for the services themselves. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Services 
as a generic term, okay. right? So in front of your application services, inside Kubernetes, but mm-hmm. also in front of your database. Okay, that's really interesting. And are there CRDs that I would use? Like, how would I configure this in the context of Kubernetes for traffic? <laughs> it depends. It depends. Okay. Yeah. If you want to do this in front of a database, specifically, it depends on how you are deploying your database. Mm-hmm. Is it inside Kubernetes or not? I mean, it's just a pod, simple. Yes. So if this is the case, you need to have something that handles the uh, tracing in front of your database. Mm-hmm. I mean, it depends on the database. Some database are have some integration with those tracing systems. Some are, does not have. In this case, you need to have something in front of that. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Okay. And can traffic be that something or would it need to be something else? No, you can also use traffic. Mm. So in that case, it would not be an ingress controller, I guess. It would be a bit different, but yes, it could be that. Interesting. Okay. I'll check it out. That's really, really interesting. Mm. Okay. So David and Marcus, I know that you're not listening to this because it will come out after we record, but uh, just so that you know, I was thinking about this just before we did the recording. Okay, so this is our own very specific problem, but I'm sure that you have a much broader perspective on the traffic community. What other big problems are you seeing in the community and what are you thinking about them or how are you thinking about them? So this is the big question because with traffic, we are talking about a really small problem in the networking space, right? It is a reverse proxy thing or the ingress controller But it's tiny, right? The networking space is so much bigger. And in fact, we found that with the rise of microservices, the crazy exponential growth of the number of applications you have to deal with, uh, not only you have to automate the reverse proxy in networking space, you need to automate all the networking space, right? Mm -hmm. So basically that's what we found. Another interesting aspect we discovered is that we do think that in the future, now that Kubernetes has won the orchestration war, there is no word on that, right? Companies are either testing or migrating or already using Kubernetes in production today, and it will be even they will be using Kubernetes even more tomorrow. The big pain point that we are seeing coming is the number of Kubernetes cluster is just going to grow exponentially. It's already difficult to manage one Kubernetes cluster, but imagine if you have to manage 10 or or 100, it's crazy. And today, what do you have to handle 100 Kubernetes clusters? Mm -hmm. Nothing. You have to basically orchestrate all those Kubernetes clusters together yourself. And that is something that is pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. And we do think that Traffic Labs, being a networking expert as a company, has something to play in that space, right? Because having multiple Kubernetes clusters is just a big distributed system with uh, wires between all those clusters, Mm -hmm. right? So basically, if you handle, if you control the networking aspect between all those clusters, that's fine. You handle everything. And that's what we think mm-hmm. about the future. And that's what we think that will be the big pain in the next few years, yeah. how to handle all those Kubernetes clusters now that Kubernetes is a standard. That's a really interesting perspective because you're right. I mean, we ourselves only have one and we're like possibly the smallest team you could have, like just a few people. Now, I'm already thinking of having another one, like a, a, a C cluster that manages all other clusters. So I'm wondering whether you're thinking about the management of Kubernetes cluster, whether that's your perspective or the connectivity of Kubernetes clusters. What are you thinking about? Everything. Okay. I mean, you can think about Kubernetes federation. Mm-hmm. 
That's one solution to handle several Kubernetes clusters as a management perspective, but also connectivity to those clusters, interconnectivity mm. between those clusters, security, end-to-end -end security yeah. from users to all those clusters, all those aspects, high availability between all those clusters. Mm. How do you do a blue-green deployment between two clusters or between a hundred clusters? Yeah. This kind of stuff. So today it's almost impossible to do it simply. I mean, it is impossible to have something simply. You have to gather a gigantic number of software and platform mm -hmm. to make it work. And that's an interesting problem that we want to tackle at Traffic Labs. That's a big problem space. And you made me really curious now. So I'll keep an eye. That sounds really <laughs> interesting. So coming from this big problem space, coming to a smaller problem space, or not a problem space, like a space, is which is your favorite traffic proxy? Because traffic is so much more than just a proxy, by the way. I mean, if you've made it this far and you don't know what traffic is, just go and check it out. There's like so many aspects to it. But if we look just at the traffic proxy, the 2.5 version, the latest miner, which is your favorite feature, Emil? In the world traffic uh, reverse proxy, yeah, there are so many aspects. So at least we have four categories, I guess. You have the routing load balancing categories, the security aspect. You said the auto-discovery, the dynamic configuration aspect, I would say. And then finally, the observability aspect, mm -hmm. right? And this has a lot of features in every of these categories, right? So it's kind of complex. But I guess one of my favorite features is one of the oldest, I guess, is the Let's Encrypt integration. Traffic is natively integrated with Let's Encrypt. And this allows users to generate automatically TLS certificate for securing all those connections end-to-end. And this is one of the features that made traffic so popular. You can get TLS, certified TLS for free, <laughs> verified TLS certificate for free. And it's kind of magic mm -hmm. when you see it work. So that's one of my favorite feature in traffic. Okay, so this is unexpectedly interesting. And the reason why it's unexpectedly interesting is because today we have Ingress Nginx and Cert Manager, which from what I'm hearing, traffic is handling as a single component. That's interesting. Now, there's a certain requirement that we have with the certificates. Those certificates, especially the wildcard ones, then we have to synchronize with the CDN. It's all running in Kubernetes, it's all self-contained. So that sync is happening, part of the same system, and it's like a closed system. Does traffic expose those certificates, the private key and the certificate and the public key in a way that we can upload it easily to using an API to the CDN? Is that available? Are those certificates available? Do you know? In theory, traffic is connecting to the CDN itself. Mm -hmm. It is configuring itself, the CDN, right? To create the DNS entry, for example, to validate your wildcard certificate. So you don't have to do anything mm. in that specific use case, right? I think I'm thinking about getting hold of the values of the public key and the private key so that we can upload them to the CDN. Because Cert Manager, that manages the integration with the certificate provider, let's encrypt in this case, via DNS. So Cert Manager is integrated with DNS, which then gets a let's encrypt certificate. And then we have a job basically, which automatically synchronizes the resulting private key and a certificate. Yeah. So we synchronize those with a CDN via the API because the CDN is out running outside, obviously outside of Kubernetes. So Kubernetes is just like our origin. Okay, okay. Because you you want to have the same certificate on the uh, CDN. Exactly, yes. 
Okay, okay. So yes, basically you would have to do the same with traffic. Okay. It would work the same, but you would have to do it. Okay. So as long as I can access those values, that's all I would need. And that means I would reduce one of the components or remove one of the components and simplify the whole setup. I love that. That sounds great. Okay. So one more reason to look at traffic. Wow. Okay. Not that I needed it, but still, okay, that's interesting. So as we are wrapping up, as a listener, if I had to remember one thing from this conversation, what would that be? So at Traffic Labs, as we already uh, talked about during this podcast, we have a really strong connection with our community. And this is something I'm extremely proud of because, first of all, it's not easy. And also, once you succeed in doing that, you get so much from it, so much. You get some feedback, you get some criticism, you get some angry people, you get many stuff, but that's super important. Mm -hmm. And it helps to build some great tools together. So yeah, I would love to encourage people to create this kind of communities even more and more in the future, because at the end of the day, that's probably the best way to build a successful and and useful product for your users, Mm -hmm. right? So yeah, that's my takeaway. Communities are probably one of the hardest thing to build and sustain, but the reward is huge. From my perspective, that is a sign of a true cloud native company and product. If you believe what you've just said, that's it. Because cloud native is all about the community, all about the people. That's one of my focuses as well in this part. Actually, that's like my central focus for this podcast, the people behind everything that we do. Because if you don't nurture those relationships, if you don't look after those people, what do you have? A bunch of tech that goes outdated and nobody wants to use because it's horrible, right? Because it's not made for people. It's made for machines. It's made for, you know, whatever. It doesn't really matter because nobody cares. So that's it. That's a great one. I love that. Thank you, Emil. Thank you very much. Thank you. I loved having you. Looking forward to next time. This was too good. Thank you. Cool. Thank you so much for your time too. Happy to discuss in the future. That's it for this episode of Ship It. Thank you for tuning in. We have a bunch of podcasts for developers at Changelog that you should check out. Subscribe to the master feed at changelog.com forward slash master to get everything we ship. I want to personally invite you to join your fellow Changeloggers at changelog.com forward slash community. It's free to join and stay. Leaving, on the other hand, will cost you some happiness credits. Come hang with us in Slack. There are no imposters. Everyone is welcome. Huge thanks again to our partners, Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Minnow. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all our awesome beats. That's it for this week. See you next week. Thank you.